Welcome to Expert Instruction, the Teach by Design podcast, where we dive deeper into the research surrounding student behavior by talking with the people implementing these practices where they work and with the students that they support. Today, we're gonna to continue our conversation around culturally responsive practices. We started this whole conversation all the way back in November with Athena Vernon, um, where she talked about she talked with us about the difference between school uh, school's climate and a school's culture. And during that conversation, she shared her story about um, an after school program that she um, was involved with with a, a colleague and how they started out the year with a blank behavioral matrix and asked the students to be the ones to fill it in. And initially, as she was telling that story, I realized that it made me uncomfortable because it flipped those traditional roles of teachers being the ones to dictate to students how they expected them to act in class. And it put the students actually in charge. And I mean, honestly, in spite of how I actually felt about that particular story, her practice is a really good one. I mean, students ought to have a voice in the schools that they go to every day and how they work for them. So that brought us to last month's conversation that we had with, um, uh, with Dr. Jennifer Rose, Melanie Leverson, and Kent Smith, where we explored the concept, this concept of voice within culturally responsive practices. And I listened to that conversation three times. I participated in it. And then I went back and I listened to it three more times, partly because, I mean, it's my job. I, I needed to listen to it again. But I also listened to it and I got, I got a bunch of lessons out of it every single time. But the one that really stuck with me is, well, it goes a little like this. So I went into that conversation really hoping to come away with some real nuts and bolts kind of strategies that we could share with all of you on how you could start to embed student voice in your practices. And every time I tried to get that, I would ask a question like, how do we do this? What do you do? What have you seen that works? I was met with a really encouraging voice of Dr. Rose, who basically was telling me that we couldn't just make that leap, that we had to first do the really important job of exploring our own identity before we could then reach out and be inclusive and intentional about including new voices and perspectives in our approaches. So in that moment, as it was happening, I didn't catch it, but after the fact, here's the valuable lesson that I take away. Now maybe you can relate to this, but basically what happened was I was confronted with a practice that ran counter to what I would have done. I felt some discomfort and then I immediately wanted to, someone to tell me what I could do differently. Like, how can I address this? When really what Dr. Rose is telling us and kept bringing me back to is that there's a step in between, right? That, that you, you're confronted with something that runs counter, you feel the discomfort, and then you have this step where you actually need to explore some of your own identity. And so what I needed to do is First, figure out why, why I felt so uncomfortable. Then I needed to identify the aspects of my own thinking that had actually brought me to that discomfort. Like what in my history brings me to this place where this person's experiences are actually kind of running so counter that I'm feeling some discomfort. 
And then I need to make some strategic choices about how I'm going to shift my thinking in the future to avoid just doing that, just going and doing that comfortable thing when actually doing the uncomfortable thing is what would make a more equitable and responsive choice, right? So when we talk about equity in schools, it can be easy to think primarily about all the ways that overt racism and bigotry and misogyny can impact our school's cultures. But maybe what might be more impactful is discovering all of those ways that we've implemented discriminatory practices without even realizing it. In August of 2014, um, Nicholas Kristof, he uh, is one of my favorite journalists, he wrote an opinion piece that ran in the New York Times um, a couple of weeks after Mike Brown, a black teenager, was shot by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. And he had several points to back up this quote that I'm about to read, but um, here's what he said. And I wanna use this as sort of a foundation for something to ground us in our conversation today. He said, research in the last couple of decades suggests that the problem is not so much overt racists. Rather, the larger problem is a broad swath of people who consider themselves enlightened, who intellectually believe in racial equality, who deplore discrimination, yet who harbor unconscious attitudes that result in discriminatory policies and behavior. And what he's talking about is what we call implicit bias. And it's what we're going to talk to and get into with Dr. Eric Gervin in this episode today. So Dr. Dr. Gervin is with us and he is an associate professor at the University of Oregon School of Law and the co-director for the Conflict and Dispute Resolution Program there. He also collaborates with our director here at PBIS Apps, Dr. Kent McIntosh, on research related to how stereotypes, attitudes, and other biases might impact decisions that you make in schools. Thanks for being here, Eric. Thank you, Megan. Yeah. So for anyone who's like paid any attention to the footnotes in our articles, like, because <laughs> that's a really important part of our Teach by Design blog, <laughs> the footnotes, they might see that some of your research has actually shown up there a couple of times. And whenever I come across an article where you've been uh, either a lead author or some author on it, I'm always really impressed and appreciate the way that you have used data to inform everything. There's so much data and so much math that happens. Some of it is beyond my student of the humanities mind. Um, but, uh, but also you take that information and you move it into like, what is that, what are the implications of all of this and how can we actually move to make some different decisions to make our schools more equitable places for students that we support every day. Um, what I'm really curious about first, before we get into some of these nuts and bolts are, um, is how do you go from being a lawyer to the work that you're doing now around implicit bias and working on figuring all of this out for schools? So I guess it goes back in my mind, it seems like it actually is a logical connection, but great, <laughs> but also circuitous. <laughs> um, so we'll see if the, we'll see if the audience agrees. Yeah. Uh, the The reason that I became interested in law to begin with actually related to environmental issues. That's why I started out my undergraduate in um, oh, okay. research in and looking at undergraduate uh, at environmental issues, and got interested in policy, 
And then hit on this idea that our laws are actually supposed to be things that change behavior. That's sure. in some reason why we have them. Okay. And, and I wasn't convinced that they were always as effective as they could be at helping us move in the directions that we wanted to move in. Mm -hmm. And that just led to one, I guess, an initial impulse to go to law school to study the legal system more to see how it worked. And then ultimately after practicing for quite a while, I was a, uh, active in litigation for seven years mm -hmm. of going back to school to getting a PhD in, in psychology um, to explore the other side of that equation, which is now I sort of see how the system works. I have, I'm very familiar with it, uh, the legal system, but what kinds of factors could we use to make it better? What kinds mm -hmm. of things actually do change behavior? Mm -hmm. um, and with the idea of doing that. And so, um, you could apply that more broadly. So I'd still do work in the legal system, okay. um, work with our State Department of Justice, Criminal Justice Commission, um, and other areas around, around a lot of the same issues, frankly, that I, we study in schools around where what causes racial disparities and how do we address those causes. Sure. Um, but, that, but I think about it all in my head in the same way, which is <laughs> we have behaviors that we want to change, in this case, discriminatory outcomes mm -hmm. produced by them. How can we do a better job of understanding when and how they occur, so that we can change our policies and practices to a better to do a better job of changing them? So whether that's, that's a legal system or whether that's a discipline system, right, or an educational yeah. system, it all is that same sort of problem. Um, and I use really similar approaches in each of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see I can see those connections for sure. It's been interesting because my background is in journalism, and so there's like there's all kinds of really interesting ways that law like makes its way into these different avenues that we're exploring, and um, and it's true. I think what you're pointing out, I hadn't considered it, is that it's all about the systems and changing behavior, and um, so that's interesting. How long have you been um, working with? schools and implicit bias specifically? Um, I'd say about seven years yeah. now. Um, yeah. And I mean, it is to that particular connection. Um, what I'm really interested in doing, I guess, if you're in the, and you're in the broader social science or just sciences world, um, I guess you're, I am what you'd think of as an applied scientist. Mm -hmm. um, I, I sort of am trying to coin and push the work, the word direct impact. Oh. It's like, how do we take our science and make it direct to have the impacts of it be direct? Yeah. Um, and a lot of the way to do that is finding um, folks in the field who are interested in thinking about what they're doing and, and doing a better job, basically, mm -hmm. and working to help and assist them um, so that the research actually speaks to, to what they want and need. Um, and then the results can actually be used. How did you and Kent connect? initially? Yeah, so originally it was actually with Rob Horner, yeah, uh, who some folks may know. Um, and I actually, uh, I reached out to him mm -hmm. once I got a job at the University of Oregon, because I had done some reading on areas, essentially reading more broadly on areas where um, discrimination seems, discriminatory outcomes tend to be a problem. Yeah. And of course, education was one of those. And then sure. I saw that a lot of the work had been authored by um, a few prominent <laughs> folks, of which one of yeah. which was Rob. Um, yeah. And so I thought to myself, 
you know, this guy's office is less than a mile from mine. Maybe I should go sit Very down close. with him. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I guess um, propinquity, right? How close yeah. was, was, was that connection? And so we yeah. had lunch and I talked about how I think about these problems, similar to what uh-huh. we talked about before. And I think the topic for today. Um, and he, his response was, was along the lines of, we're at a situation where we've really documented this problem mm-hmm. and we need the next steps to try to solve it. And we yes. think that some of the things that, that you have might be useful for doing that, some of those frameworks or ideas. So let's see if we can figure out how we might merge the two. I really like that. Um, I, I think that it's been interesting in the work that I've been doing, just trying to like figure out this whole, all of these practices um, in the last few months, just the different, um, the different people that have something to say and people that are outside of education in particular, I think have a unique perspective on it. So I'm really glad that you could join us today to talk about it. So we're talking about implicit bias. And so before we get into it, it would be important probably to define it. So for you, how do you go about defining what implicit bias is specifically how it relates to those um, explicit, maybe more overt biases that we, that we traditionally think about? Yeah, so there's there's a few different ways to think about implicit bias or the ways that I think about it. Um, you mentioned that quote from Nicholas Kristof in that piece. Um, I think the term implicit bias is, is used a lot in the media. We hear about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it isn't always used in the same way in psychology in a technical sense. Okay. Uh, so if I'm thinking about, uh, you mentioned explicit bias and implicit bias. One sort of common way to think about implicit bias is um, juxtaposing it against explicit bias. So I'll, I'll yeah. start with that idea. Okay. Um, that we think about uh, explicit bias as um, beliefs or evaluations, attitudes that people know they have and consciously endorse and advocate for. Okay. So this is tradi- This is what we think of as sexism or racism, or most people think about that. So, for example, the General Social Survey sociologists use it to study attitudes. It'll have questions in it that are like. Um, should women be allowed to work outside the home if they don't absolutely have to? Right. Right. Um, And so you ask that question to somebody and if someone says, no, women shouldn't be allowed to work outside the home, right? That's what we think of as classic sexism. They've taken time to think about it. They think about it as (laughs) that way, right? It organizes their worldview. That's what we think about as as kind of these explicit bias with sexism. Um, Implicit bias by comparison is automatic um, associations that we have between people and um, social groups or social roles that they have. And so an example of it that we sometimes talk about in our training would be similar to that is that um, if you um, see a family, you might Mm -hmm. automatically make assumptions that the male is a breadwinner and the woman is the caregiver, Mm -hmm. right? If Mm -hmm. there's, when you're looking at a family that way. That automatic assumption just comes from the fact that we tend to associate women more, most people more with that caregiving role and men more with the breadwinning role. It doesn't mean that you think that's all they can do. It doesn't mean that if you talk with them and the woman says, actually, I'm an engineer and the man says, I'm a stay-at-home dad, that your attitude or your response might be great for you. Great. Right. And so yeah. the, the fact that you have those associations or that initial automatic assumption about who does what based on 
traditional roles or where it Mm -hmm. comes from an experience, that's Mm -hmm. the implicit bias piece. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether you actively endorse it, act on it, think of it as the way things should be, that's an explicit bias piece. Yeah. Um, and, And we think about this a lot. I mean, that's an example that relates to sexism but we do it sort of with everything. So we're in a world right now where um, there's a lot of political polarization, for example. And so um, if people are at all politically engaged, you're driving down the street, you see a car in front of you and it has a bumper sticker that suggests Mm. that the driver or at least owner of that car is a member of a different political party than you are. Mm -hmm. People generally have no trouble coming up with all kinds of assumptions about that person's beliefs, um, mm-hmm. what they like to do, right, et cetera. Those mm-hmm. sort of automatically come in and mm-hmm. we have to recognize we don't know that person. Right. Um, so those right. are, again, sort of this automatic assumptions or things that come in quickly that our brain um, does just from the way we organize the world. But it doesn't mean that you necessarily endorse them, think they're right, or whatever, right? Those mm-hmm. kinds of things. That's more associated with explicit bias. Yeah, I was, um, I should probably tell everyone that you um, run a workshop, at least that here at U of O, do you run this workshop in other places too around implicit bias? Yeah, I do a fair amount of discussions with folks, either with organizations, um, including again, uh, courts, law enforcement and others around that, um, around that idea at, at varying depths. Yes. So, so um, uh, there was this, there were some recordings that were available because we work in the same place. You know, I have access to a recorded version of the workshop and um, something that you said in it really kind of stuck with me and helped me to understand the difference. And um, one thing that you said was you don't see the world the way it is. You see it the way your brain tells you it is. And so Um, It's something that I've thought about, like, do I see the color blue the same way you see the color blue? Like, it's this kind of idea, right, that, like, we have to make sense of all of these different things that are coming into our vision at, like, rapid rates. And so one way for us to make sense of it all is to is to implement or to utilize some of these stereotypes, not in in necessarily a bad way, but a way that just helps us to keep ourselves organized. And the the implicit bias that we have is when we don't realize that we're doing that. And the explicit bias is when we do realize that we're doing it and we're like, okay with it. Yeah. That it's, it's a reflection of our true belief. Um, Yes. So um, there are some other ways that you've done um, that you have helped in the workshop identify the ways that our brain does this naturally. And one of them was this test where you, um, it was the color one where you, you see a series of, um, of names of colors. And in one test, the name of the color is written in the color, in that, in that color. So the word green is written in green and the word red is written in red, yellow and yellow. And you can read through this, what is it like 20 names of colors or something like this? Yeah, it's, like, it's a little bit more than that. So this is the, it's called the Stroop task. It's pretty yeah. classic. Yeah. And so you can read through them. And as you go, you can actually kind of pick up speed because you get the pattern. Right. And so you can read through them all and it doesn't take very long. Then the alternate way of reading through this, there's a new picture that's shown. And um, the 
name of the color is actually written in a color that isn't the name. So green is written in yellow and pink, the word pink is written in orange, these kinds of things. And now you have to try and read it. And it's actually really hard. I took it at some point and I think I read through the first set in about 10 or 11 seconds, something like this. And then the second set, it took me like 30 seconds. And I, there were several times where I said the wrong name of the color because I, I was reading the actual word. So it was hard, um, but I think it just proved the point that like our brain is just naturally trying to find patterns and ways of making sense of things. And the implicit part of that is that we don't realize sometimes the ways that it's doing that in um, and how that can actually manifest itself in these discriminatory practices that we never intended. Yeah, in fact, I mean, from, our, from a cognitive standpoint, that efficiency is, is part of the whole point. Yeah. Um, that the world is really complicated. We can, it's, it takes a lot of effort to actually focus attention on something and really think it through. Mm -hmm. So our brain can only do that about a few things. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the world that's going on, we have to be able to manage efficiently, yes. largely outside of our conscious awareness, because it just would be too hard to focus on it all. Right. I know that we, we have an, an, um, an audience of educators here. I know another mm -hmm. example I use around that um, is if anyone's tried to teach children to read, mm -hmm. right? Those of us who are fluent in reading, right? You're fluent in reading English. You don't think about it at all. You can read whole sentences extremely rapidly with almost no effort. Right. And you compare that to someone who's first learning to read and they have to identify the letters, sound out the letters, identify mm -hmm. them with a concept that's the word, then remember that to do the next one and do the whole mm -hmm. thing again. That's what it's like to individually process information. <laughs> right? And so our brain is sort of built to try to automate as much as we can, make it quick. And, and that means that we end up categorizing things and don't pay attention always to the individual differences we sort yes. of make assumptions about them being the same or fitting some kind of set of characteristics. And it may be that they don't at all. Right. Like my assumption that teachers are supposed to be in charge when actually students can be engaged in collaboration. Yeah. And a lot of that, mm -hmm. you know, based on our experience, um, I, I say sometimes we're all in maybe profound ways, prisoners of our experience. We yeah. don't know what we don't know. And it's hard for us to appreciate the things we haven't experienced. And a lot of times we sort of automatically make that quick assumption that the way things have been done are the way they ought to be done and mm -hmm. that there can't be a different way. Um, but that's not necessarily true. Right. I think that's the part of it that has made me so curious about this particular concept is that it's, it's these unconscious biases, right? So how can you possibly pinpoint something that you don't even realize you're doing, you know? So how do these come up for people? Like um, when are our implicit biases likely to sort of show up in our, in our lives? Yeah, so there's, there's two things about those that I think, um, well, I'll answer it two different ways. One okay. is the, the, what you just talked about. It can be very challenging to identify it in yourself because yes. that part of what you're doing is on autopilot and you just sort of, there, your brain assumed that something was true. You never tested it or challenged it because you yes. were trying to focus on something else. Um, and because it never was reflected upon, um, you may never even know that you did it, right? Mm -hmm. Until you potentially get called on it or there's a problem. So a quick example that I have of this is actually from a training in a, in a court system. Okay. Um, one of our county courts here, all of the judges in the county are women. 
Um, they are? They are, yeah. See, and your surprise right there tells you right that association. <laughs> we have assumptions about, about who is a judge, right? Um, yeah. And it turns out that the clerks who worked for those judges would mm -hmm. catch themselves sometimes, particularly if they were really busy, high stress or whatever, using male pronouns for their female bosses. Interesting. Right? And so that's an area where you can reflect. So I put my foot in my mouth, right? Um, yeah. By doing that. And I can reflect back and think, why did I do that? Well, it's for that same reason, right? Because our brains tend to have stronger associations between, we, we sort of expect or assume that judges are men. Yes. Um, and so when we're not reflecting on it in a moment, um, we might act or whatever as if they're men, even though, I mean, these are the people we report to, right? These are your bosses. Um, and so you get this idea, right? And so it's sometimes those upon reflection, like, mm -hmm. oh, I just had a moment to, I realized what came out of my mouth mm -hmm. <laughs> and I realized it was wrong. And mm -hmm. you have those. So sometimes people can, you can feel or see the effects of those associations that way. But again, not always, because sometimes you're able to act that way and nothing happens that abruptly confronts sure. it to you. And so it just kind of go on your merry way. And that doesn't mean it doesn't have an effect, right? So that's right. Um, right. But that also leads into the second part of your question, which is when does this happen? Um, you know, that's not going to happen if somebody in that circumstance has a chance to plan out an introduction that they're going to read for right. the judge and they have the time to read it carefully while they're doing it. It's right. more likely to happen when you're acting spontaneously, you're multitasking, you're under stress, you're, mm -hmm. right, it, these sort of situations or conditions um, where the automatic part of our brains is going to be more influential generally is gotcha. also the kind of areas where implicit biases are more likely to be um, influential. So um, sometimes in our research, we call these vulnerable decision points. Uh, okay. the kinds of contextual situational factors and also the intrapersonal factors that make you more vulnerable to relying on those quick automatic assumptions. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. externally that can be um, multitasking, right? Yes. You're in front of a class and you're trying to get through your lesson plan um, and there's five other things going on mm -hmm. are times when you're sort of most likely to have those assumptions be unexamined and so color your perception, your judgment, and your decision making around um, students or what's happening. Okay. Um, it's also true from internal factors, we think, like things like where you're very, where you're angry, where you're stressed out, where you're really hungry, basically the kinds of situations where you're not able or willing to put as much effort into thinking about the particular situation mm -hmm. as you might otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, most of us know, I mean, I'm here sort of sipping my coffee here. Um, <laughs> most of us know that, that or, or a lot of us anyway, right? The way that I think about things is different at about nine o'clock in the morning when I'm maybe hitting a stride, I've had a few cups of coffee than it is at three in the afternoon. Oh, yeah. Um, where I'm, you know, a little tired and maybe phoning it in a bit, yeah. um, right? In terms of cognitively. And so that kind of thing, that sort of tired, how careful you are. Um, oh, man, if I'm hungry. Yeah. If I'm hungry, do not ask me to do something <laughs> for you, okay? Because, yes. yeah, yeah, so I those get are it. The, those are the kinds of conditions. And mm -hmm. um, and the thing about thinking about it that way, I, mean, I think one of the things that we've we've done in the educational context and, and others, thinking about it that way, is it actually is useful, it's useful for taking a really big problem 
mm -hmm. right? racial disparities and all the things that might cause right. them. Um, right. And breaking it down into actually, there's probably a few times a day where you're particularly vulnerable. A few, mm -hmm. maybe a few kids that particularly push your buttons, maybe a couple of um, um, classes, right, where things get differently. Mm -hmm. And we can actually focus on particular strategies for those particular vulnerable points and not worry about it anytime, every time, all the time. Right, all the time. It's on your right. mind. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, that's sort of the approach that we take. Yeah. Um, and I think too, you mentioned some, uh, whenever the, if a decision is ambiguous. Um, and so when I think about in schools and we're talking yes. about student behavior, we're talking, we're thinking about some of these very specific behaviors, right. That we've talked about in some of our articles, um, defiance, disrespect, um, disruption. there's one more disruption, right. Like talking about a kid and saying like, you're being disruptive or, um, or, you know, these kinds of things like, that is that is so subjective, right? Yes. To to whoever is offering up that criticism. Yes, so, so those are the kinds of places too, yeah, that it can it can show up. Yeah, definitely. So um, we can think about this again. This is back to thinking thinking on our own um, mm -hmm. about ourselves. But um, it may be that a kind of statement you give an assignment and you get a little bit of talk back from your class about it that mm -hmm. you're able to handle that a little bit differently in the morning. Yeah. And you're more relaxed and um, things haven't built up. You're not hungry or whatever. Then mid afternoon, you might respond mm -hmm. differently to the very same language. Mm -hmm. The same idea for this, um, where it's subject to interpretation, mm -hmm. right? how much of what particular kind of comment or behavior um, is acceptable versus not in the moment is manageable in the classroom context or not in the moment, or mm -hmm. those are all pretty, um, there is a lot of subjectivity and discretion yeah. to those judgment calls. And so those external factors and internal states are gonna be more influential on how you might be essentially people, there's a risk people treating the same kinds of comments or behaviors differently at different times of day from different students, from different, um, backgrounds, um, one that common, and I know it comes up in teachers a lot when we talk about identifying our implicit biases or those automatic assumptions. Um, one thing that teachers mention a lot is younger siblings. Like if you've taught an older sibling uh -oh. and you've developed a relationship with them and then you recognize, mm -hmm. you learn that the newer, you have a new student who's mm -hmm. a younger sibling, people tend to make assumptions about them automatically mm -hmm. that relate to their older sibling, right? So sure. um, all of these kinds of factors are in play, but yes, where we have a lot more discretion um, that's that we expect, uh, essentially that makes, makes decisions more vulnerable. So you mentioned mm -hmm. those three D's, defiance, yes. disrespect, disruption, those, we focus a lot on those. We can compare those just like kind of the implicit versus explicit bias. We can compare those to things like, um, uh, vulnerable decision points are not usually things like, um, where students are fighting or sure. if someone's engaged in overt vandalism, if someone's, I mean, there are some things, <laughs> right, or <laughs> mm -hmm. taking drugs, depending on what context you're in, right, you come with right. students taking illegal drugs in um, the mm -hmm. bathroom, right, they're, they're going to get written up and disciplined and whatever other sort of rigorous thing. It's, and mm -hmm. those areas, because they don't have discretion, we actually mm -hmm. don't see a lot of um, racial disparities in them. Mm -hmm. Or, mm -hmm. you know, if students are punching each other in the face, 
there isn't much discretion identifying that behavior, right? People you kind of know that something's going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking too, though, about um, another one that came up, I think, in one of the work in the workshop that I was um, watching, someone had mentioned dress code. And it was a really interesting um, conversation, I think, or something that you guys talked about in the, in the workshop. It might be good to talk about it a little bit here, which is that um, the way, like an appropriate way of dressing at school could um, include some of our own implicit bias when we're defining for students what they can wear and not wear in certain situations within our the, the school context. Yeah. So how do you, um, what I'm thinking about is, um, I was thinking about it a little bit yesterday, trying to come up with what question I was going to ask you around this, but essentially- Maybe let me pick it up because I think, well- You got it? You got well, it? I think I have an idea of what saying? you're driving, so I think that's- <laughs> uh, I think what I got is that how do we, where I, what I came to is um, when it comes to these kinds of behaviors where there is some ambiguity within them, how do we help to define them or at least encourage um, a specific behavior without encouraging the behaviors that are of the dominant culture, right? Yep. That, um, so I think that's kind of my question. Yes, so great. Um, I'll, I'll set it up this way because this is how I tend to think about that problem. Okay. If one of the areas that makes something vulnerable uh, <laughs> to the effects of implicit bias is discretion, then logically one of the solutions to it is to reduce discretion. Okay, so okay. let's make a policy that we're all going to handle these the exact same way. Right. We identify them. Right. Um, and anytime we make a policy concrete like that, there's a danger that we build in, as you put in, because a lot of the themes of this is culturally responsive pieces, that mm -hmm. we built in our own assumptions and experiences about yes. what is actually problematic versus mm -hmm. not, and what is yeah. right or not, and right. what responses are going to be effective to it, because now we've made them, we've turned it into a flowchart. <laughs> right, that's yeah. going to apply to everyone, even though yeah. everyone may not be similarly situated. Yeah. Um, that's a, um, I mean, I think probably one of the more classic examples of that uh, from my other professional hat mm -hmm. is it used to be sentencing for criminal sentencing was almost entirely up to the discretion of judges. And not surprisingly, there were large racial disparities. Yeah. So the US Sentencing Commission came in and said, we're going to develop really stringent sentencing guidelines. And they did so, and it, and it actually dramatically reduced the racial disparities in sentencing. And then we passed laws that did things like what you're talking about that ended up having disparate impacts mm -hmm. on different groups. Well, the, the most famous example of that um, was the distinction between crack cocaine mm -hmm. and powder cocaine during the drug war. Okay. Um, and so if you were found with, let's say, five ounces of crack cocaine, mm -hmm. you would be sentenced to 100 times the length of a sentence that you would if you had the same volume of powder cocaine. Even though they're chemically identical, right? They essentially have the pace. But crack cocaine was associated with gangs and inner city black youth. Uh -huh. And powder uh -huh. cocaine is associated with upper middle class or upper class white people who are having parties in their house, so not really causing a problem. So the legislature decided to differentiate between them, even though there really isn't any huh. in terms of their effects. And the fact mm -hmm. is they're both listed illegal drugs. Right. Um, and that created a disparity, right? You apply sort of what is yes. supposed to be a neutral system with the other pieces. And so we could do that with dress code, right? We could say, um, I know one of the ones that ends up being a lot in the media right now has to do with hairstyles. Mm -hmm. 
right? Um, so the idea if you um, have dress codes or other places in workplaces or schools that essentially prohibit um, black people from having natural black hairstyles, mm -hmm. that's obviously gonna have a different impact because um, I, I don't make my hair that way, but I'm also not black, right? right. Um, and so it's going to have those kinds of impacts. So that's, that's a, right. a pretty overt example. The questions are then what about more subtle examples? Mm -hmm. Um, and how that works. So, so what do we do? I think it, it really ties down, at least the recommendations and the approach that we have tie to um, what you were talking about or shared about some of your last sessions of mm -hmm. really um, getting students and others involved in the process of making those rules. Yeah. Um, it, it's okay to talk to your class about um, what actually constitutes respect. Yeah. And thinking through that to some students, things that um, signal disrespect to you might not signal disrespect to them mm -hmm. and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And coming up with, um, you know, keeping focused on our goal of preserving a safe environment that's conducive to learning, um, there actually might be more ways to do that than are consistent with your experience, right? And your sure. students may be very comfortable with learning in particular environments or having particular types of dress or whatever that they're familiar with that may strike somebody as disrespectful, um, but actually isn't problematic from a learning standpoint. Right. right. From a student standpoint. And so, right. and so finding out, um, actually doing that exploration and being willing to learn with them mm -hmm. um, kind of in both directions. And so mm -hmm. it, it being in that learning mode, I think with your students, as opposed to um, just sort of in a telling mode, mm -hmm. um, is a can, can can go a long way as i've been um right now where everything is happening in our house you're in my house hello welcome yep. <laughs> welcome um and including my kids and their learning right so i've got this kindergartner and i i actually get this really unique lens into watching how she learns and how she participates in class and i'm watching her at this desk and she's just all over the place, right? Like she went under the, she's got her headphones in. She went under the desk. She was looking at some dinosaurs that she has. She seems super distracted. And finally I had to just be like, what are they talking about? And she looked at me and she told me exactly what they were talking about. She knew what they were doing. She was focused, but she didn't seem like she was focused. And so if I was her teacher and I'm watching her in my classroom doing similar things, I'm thinking that she's disengaged. I'm thinking that she's being disrespectful, that she's not, she's not on task, all of these things, but really she is, and she just needs to move. So I think about that as you're talking, like, is it conducive to learning? And for her, all of this stuff is like, mm -hmm. it's real conducive. Like she doesn't, she can't sit still and look at a iPad screen for too long before she needs to get up and move, right? Um, and so the other part that I'm thinking about too, um, in this moment that we're in, there was in the workshop, you talked about um, vulnerable decision points and how they can come up for us. And one of the descriptions that you said was um, they're decisions that we make when we're under pressure, stress, fatigue, high emotion, or without much specific information. And 
I mean, I, when I tell you, I felt attacked by that description because that is literally my life right now. It feels like every decision that I'm making is made under more stress. There's more uncertainty. I'm tired all the time. So are my kids, my whole family, everybody's feeling this. And some of us have actually experienced some level of significant trauma in the past year. And so um, as I'm thinking about like the decisions that people are making both in distance learning and as we're preparing for, as we're hearing in the news now, students are preparing to become, to go back to being in school in person. How do we navigate um, the decisions that we're making when we're living in a time that is itself a vulnerable decision point? You know, How do we start to, to navigate and move some of these decisions that we're making with our students? Yeah, it's, it's a great question and um, a, a really challenging problem. I mean, we're in yeah. a space where um, I would say a lot of the underlying needs that might drive uh, behaviors that we would normally say um, are disruptive to education or other things yes. um, are still there or maybe even magnified. Right. And the signals to us, the way that some students communicate, because they communicate with behavior where they can't communicate with language, right, mm -hmm. and reflect on that. We all do that, right, um, mm -hmm. when we haven't done that, but but young people even more so, mm -hmm. um, is gone because they can just shut off their screen or not even show up, right? Right. So we don't even have those signals, um, which, you know, when we have them, sometimes we can misinterpret them. Or, yeah, because uh, even if, it, if if the video is off, that that can be an interpretation, an assumption made yeah. about what the student is doing. Yeah. Yes. So, um, from the psychology part of it, mm -hmm. we know we can't just be more attentive all the time to everything. <laughs> That's just not the way it works, right? I mean, if I sort of joke, they say, "Yeah, the solution to the problem is just work ten extra hours a day. No big deal." Um, yeah. Yeah. It's not it's not possible. We have constraints. We have limits. Yeah. And so a lot of this idea is um, it's okay to focus on specific pieces that mm. you think are particularly problematic. Um, there are also um, some things that are sort of, I think, generally helpful. So everybody makes mistakes. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the things that helps us move forward when we make mistakes is having relationships. Yes. And so um, we all know, right, we can, we're um, more forgiving, um, more tolerant and, and otherwise of people we regard as our friends mm -hmm. and we spend a lot of time with and, you know, can tell them when, and, and can tell them when they mess up and I, you know, even a lot of people give their friends overt permission, like if I do something stupid, kick me under the table um, <laughs> yeah, to do those right? kind of things, right? Um, and it's really yeah. different if the only interaction you have with somebody was um, like a discipline incident or an area yes. where there was a problem. Um, of course, so I, I think about that because if we're focusing on a small set of things, because we can't focus on everything, right? The whole world is a vulnerable decision point. Yes. That doesn't mean we have to fix it all, right? Let me see, because we can't, right? So trying to still give yourself ways to like, let's, let me pick my battles. This is a piece yeah. that I wanna focus on that I think is particularly problematic. And as we end up moving, um, I mean, relationships are important now, 
really important, but can be hard to cultivate just because there isn't the physical proximity anymore. Yeah. As we end up getting back into personal, to, um, to, in person. to having in-person instruction and having mm -hmm. there, I think one of those sort of general helpful things is prioritize, prioritizing those connections first. Yes, I agree. Um, because it will help with all of the other rougher portions of the transition. It will help us to get the information that we need to actually make child-specific decisions as opposed to general decisions um, mm -hmm. from those automatic assumptions. Um, and being willing in those connections in the moment to, to do things. You talked about the matrix, mm -hmm. right? To, to do those things, maybe some structured activities that help you really figure out, you know, not to assume that these three kids are going to be the ones that need the most support. <laughs> Um, but to actually figure out where it is needed because it might not fall where you think. Uh, yeah. And you know, and I've experienced that. So I'm I'm a teacher also. Um, it turns out that all my students are graduate students, so that's itself to a very than... different, right, to a different <laughs> thing. Um, and I found that it's much more, it's been much more important during this time for me to put in a lot of um, an overwhelming number, but but a a number of what I think of as really low stakes gateway. Kind of assignments or touch points because like they what? um so normally you know if we'd be learning about a law case or whatever that's applying okay. a rule normally i would assign the reading um and then we would ask questions about it in class right and, and have some right. application to it to a new hypothetical or other piece now i'm adding in things like an assignment that just says um tell me what the key language of the law is that the case is applying it sure. might take a student 30 seconds to do that once they've read it. I mean, in addition to, they, they have to read sure. the case anyway, but assuming mm -hmm. they read it, it's not very hard mm -hmm. to put it in there. Um, and I can tell from the 10% of students that don't do it, where I need to direct my attention in terms of the outreach pieces. Cause I can't reach out to everybody. Right. They don't ha um, they have limited resources. And those 10, that 10% might not be the ones that I expected. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's where those automatic assumptions are sort of building in ways to check and to follow up and where where you're able to focus on your um, knowing that you need to divide your attention or focus it right on those vulnerable yeah. decision points or other pieces, knowing yeah. you need to pick them and then having a specific strategy to get the information you need to address that. Because if 10 percent or 10 aren't doing it right, um, it means 90 percent are. Yeah. Great. Right. So it tells yeah. me where where I need to focus. And so yeah. I can do the follow up with that group and I can, you know, um, sort of give myself that information that I might that I don't get in this space that I might get in person otherwise. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you're describing is a tiered approach right, yep. to dealing with the issue, which is just exactly what we do in person in school with behavior. And you can apply it in so many different ways. And so what you're describing sounds to me like you have um, found a way and maybe others can too, to, um, to discriminating between students that you really wanna focus on versus students that are doing okay for right now and really making sure that, like you said, you can't focus on everything all the time, all at once. You really do need to be able to focus your attention on specific groups of students who need more assistance than others. Um, and yeah. so I think that's, I think that's a good point. Um, and the one thing I'll add to that, just to take it back to the first part, which is yes, when I, when I see them not doing it, I don't, even though it's an instructional assignment, 
-hmm. I don't view it as instructional information. Mm. I view it as a need for a relationship connection. Yeah, I think that's important. And so that's understanding again, what you're focusing on. It is a a, um, multi-tiered systems um, for identification and support are really great. Um, mm-hmm. And you can't do them for everything, just like no. anything else. So picking picking a priority and saying, you know, what I need to do first or during this time um, is focus on a relational piece and not make assumptions mm-hmm. about sort of who's who needs additional support in that sense, and then do that. Um, you mentioned that I'm a co-director of our conflict and dispute resolution master's program. So I know there's yeah. there is a saying in the um, alternative dispute resolution or dispute management area. It's probably elsewhere, but um, is you have to go slow to go fast. Mm. And that's really what that's, I view that as, that's what that's about is um, sort of, I could have that instructional assignment or those gateway assignments. And if someone doesn't get it, I might, I could make an assumption that they're just not smart or they're not getting the information or whatever it is. But understanding that actually where I need to start is wipe away my assumptions about what it means mm. and go in and learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's nice. And getting curious about what's going on, not necessarily just for your student, but for you too, you know? Yes. Um, man, well, we've talked kind of all over the place. Are there other aspects of this that we didn't quite get to touch on? Maybe um, maybe we can talk just briefly um, about some of the strategies that you had mentioned or started to mention um, around when you have these certain types of vulnerable decision points, whether it's an ambiguous decision, a snap decision, or something where you you have a lot of, you can't use your, you have to use your automatic brain instead of um, your thoughtful one. Um, There are some ways that you can kind of counteract what's going on for your brain. Yeah, so a lot of that is um, moving the automatic to the deliberate. Right. So, okay. So once I figure I need to spend some time thinking about where my vulnerable decision points might be, because they Mm -hmm. do tend to be more systematic than we think. Yes. Uh, Most, most teachers that I've talked to, and it's the same for me, you know, if you say, so which is, which is your hardest class period? Because I'd be like, oh, right after lunch or the last one of the day or first one in the morning or whatever. There's one that just seems to be perennially challenging. Right. Um, And so you say, great. So that, so don't focus on all of them then. Let's focus on that one mm-hmm. and break it down to kind of a problem solving approach of um, have like maybe what's going on here is uh, my buttons are getting pushed because I'm missing lunch because of a staff meeting. <laughs> so mm. maybe a scheduling issue where I, you know, that happens every Wednesday yep. <laughs> or whatever. Yep. So you can figure out a way to try to address that, to prioritize and rechange it. And that actually is and can be for that situation, kind of an equity intervention for you to to Mm -hmm. address the situation. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's that the students are having a challenging time transitioning. Mm. You can find yourself consistent with the go slow to go fast kind of mantra. We got to do something different for the first five minutes of class so that we can use the other 50 minutes of class constructively. (laughs) Yeah, a colleague Um, of mine actually said something about um, her student's school made the choice to have the kids go to recess first, then lunch, rather than the other way around. Because it turned out that the kids were just rushing through their lunch to get to recess. They weren't eating. They would come back to class hungry and tired. And it just made for a mess of a transition. So by making, they didn't take any extra time. They just switched the two. It made all the difference. Yes. Mm-hmm. So thinking it through, and that's, that's where, you know, in a particular vulnerable decision point, depending on what it is, um, 
actually make the make it deliberate what you're doing. Yeah. As you said earlier with the culturally responsive piece, don't assume, you know, put your automatic assumptions about what's going on there. Maybe work with students on it if that yeah. you know, if it's not just your lunchtime, if it's something else that's going on. Um, because they might have requests or needs that they could tell you that you could actually just restructure a bit to meet yeah. and then find that things are going well. Um, and then, um, and that there are some and the other categories of them are, are those relational pieces. So mm -hmm. one of the training pieces that we do a lot or one of the, um, some of them are in addition to the matrix, like spending time with just the, the initial greetings, the door that it's worth it, right? To tell them as they come in, it's worth that little extra time and other mm -hmm. pieces to develop that relationship. So that you're starting off each, each class period with them at least knowing that they're welcome. Yeah. That can make a really big difference. Um, and it can matter for particular students as you talk about it. I mean, one of the, this was earlier in my career, um, not when I was a law faculty member <laughs> teaching mm -hmm. in different areas. I remember a student that I had that was like constantly disengaged, um, also yeah. wore death metal shirts and yeah. you know, other um, pieces. So you could, I'm allowing the audience to stereotype him right now, right? Let's <laughs> make this other pieces. Um, I know there. some people. And so what I what there. I did is I I asked him when he came into class one day, greeted him, and I said, "Can I can I speak to you in the hall?" Uh, and he, you know, thought he was in trouble or sure. you know, disengagement or whatever it is. And I asked him if he would be a confederate with me for an in class behavioral study that we're going to do mm -hmm. on conformity. And I wanted him <laughs> after we went in, like we were supposed to do all this conformity stuff. I wanted him after the third request to overtly disobey and sort of be <laughs> part of it. But he was totally game for chance. it, right? As yeah. you can imagine. <laughs> but not only that, right? Um, for the rest of the semester, he was engaged. Um, and I think part of that is sort of the, is someone judging me? Am I really welcome? Am mm -hmm. I, you know, where, where is this in this? And not sort of making assumptions about he's disengaged, so he's never gonna like me but thinking about what it might be to reach out and check. Um, yeah. And so having opportunities to do that. Um, then other, there's other broad ones. I mean, things that we do, we know, for example, that um, if there's subjectivity to your grading, right, we talk about academic achievement. Um, so if you're grading essays, like not true false stuff, because that's pretty obvious, sure. right? Once you get yeah. there, but if you're starting to, if you're at a level where you do a lot of grading of essays and things, um, we know from a lot of research that that can be, since it's subjective, and you might be like me where you're greeting late at night, really busy, <laughs> trying to do other stuff, right? Um, and you're in there. Uh -huh. um, and so that could be problematic. Uh, one of the things that we, well, certainly at the law school that we do, is we remove students' names from anything that we grade or set up systems. Interesting. I know. And that's actually something that's easier to do in the remote environment, because Canvas, sure. for example, for people who use that, have uh -huh. a feature that just allows for anonymous grading if you, huh. um, you know, don't have people put their names on stuff, but they submit it under their name. Yeah. Um, so there's some technology issues to that. So that's, this is just a way to a way to say that what we've ultimately come up with is um, thinking about the vulnerable decisions framework. You can't do everything all the time. Right. Right. For everybody, it's just this is not possible. But what we can do is we can focus on areas that might be most problematic a small subset of them. We can really give us our attention to think through what might be going on in that and deploy deliberate strategies. It's actually very actionable, really doing, like a lot of them we develop one pagers or a short video to, to learn how to do it. 
you can practice mm -hmm. it, right? So those sort of distribute. And those strategies are going to differ based on what's going on in that situation. So what we ultimately end up with is effectively a menu, right? <laughs> if your vulnerable decision point, if your vulnerable decision point is this kind, mm -hmm. pick one of these five things that you think could work for you and you'd be willing to do. If it's sure. this kind, pick one of these things that, that might match up with it and give mm -hmm. it a try. It's gonna be always a little bit of a learning curve and do that, but it helps people to match kind of proven strategies that are actually implementable in an area where they'll do most good. And our studies have shown that it actually really moves the needle to use yeah. that approach. Well, I think too, um, the process of unlearning some of these habits and uh, stereotypes that are ingrained in our brains takes some real deliberate practice. And so yeah. having those options, at least initially available, I think would be, would be useful. Eric, thanks for joining us today. Is there any, where can, um, where can folks follow you or your work or work of colleagues? Um, yeah, so I think for my, for my specific work, there are links to it on my bio on the law school's website, the University okay. of Oregon. Um, we have, for some of the main vulnerable decisions points pieces, there are links to it in um, data guide for pbis.org and okay. some other information around that. And then always, of course, feel, um, feel welcome to reach out to myself or Kant um, or the other folks at ECS to get, to get resources. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you.